0: This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Responsibility to Help Ourselves and Others. In the first half, William H. Baker and Matthew N. Daly share their addresses Knowing, Doing, and Being, and As We Now Go Forth. Then in the second half, Alton L. Fagerson speaks on saving lives.
1: My family is the source of my greatest joy. They have also been a source of great humor from time to time. A few years ago, in a joint family home evening with our children and grandchildren, my daughter Julie gave a lesson, and then I started making a few concluding comments, as grandpas often do. My little grandson Ethan, then age three, had had enough. And he shouted out, Just say amen, Grandpa. (laughs) He was quite young at the time, but he had learned that there was a direct correlation between when the speaker says amen and when they sit down and stop talking. Well, Ethan is here today, and I hope he will show a little more restraint as I speak. During the years I have taught at BYU, I have enjoyed hearing from a wide range of speakers on a great variety of topics. One story shared by Elder Dallin Oaks when he was president of BYU has stuck with me. Given from this very pulpit, the story went something like this. Many years ago, the federal government placed county agents throughout the country to help farmers learn to be more productive. One county agent in the South went to visit an old farmer in his area. But convincing the farmer to change proved to be rather difficult. He asked the farmer, Wouldn't you like to know how to get your cows to give more milk? Nope, the farmer replied. Well, wouldn't you like your pigs over there to grow faster and bigger? Again, the farmer answered, Nope. Well, wouldn't you like to learn how to get more bushels of corn per acre? The same answer was given as before, Nope. Exasperated, the county agent asked, Well, why not? The farmer replied simply, I already knows more than I does. In other words, his knowledge was greater than his application of that knowledge, so why make matters even worse by obtaining even more knowledge? This story highlights two great challenges of mortality. First, the need to constantly increase our knowledge and, second, the need to continually improve our behavior to keep up with that greater knowledge. But there's also a third challenge the county agent might have uncovered if he had asked a second why question. Why don't you do as much as you know? This question gets closer to the core of the problem, the farmer's level of love for his work or what he was in his heart. In addition to increasing what we know and improving how we apply that knowledge, we must refine who we are deep down in our heart. In a general conference address a few years ago, Elder Oaks stated, In contrast to the institutions of the world which teach us to know something, the gospel of Jesus Christ challenges us to become something. As we move along the path of life, each of us, as members of the Church, must address these three areas of knowing, doing, doing and being. First, we must increase our level of knowledge or what we know. In our search for truth, however, we have to be selective because we have an overwhelming amount of information available to us. It seems to me that information can be classified into four categories. In the first is that which is harmful and destructive. Much of today's media falls into this category. Pornography is especially dangerous, for it will drive away the spirit and destroy us. The second category includes information that isn't necessarily destructive but is not of much use. Pursuing it is largely a waste of time. The third category includes information that is good and useful and offers much practical benefit. Most of our university learning falls into this category. The fourth category includes vital information— specifically gospel knowledge. The truthfulness and value of the information in this fourth category will be confirmed to us by the Holy Spirit. How important it is for us to shun the harmful, avoid wasting time on the useless, and instead focus on the useful and vital. That which gives eternal perspective helps develop wisdom and teaches us the mind and nature of God. The thirteenth article of faith says that we, as Latter-day Saints, seek after things that are virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy. And that's a good standard for us to keep in mind as we choose what to read, what to listen to, and what to view. Where do we find the vital information for our lives? Three major sources, I believe, are the temple, the Church magazines, and the scriptures. In the temple, we come into the Lord's house, dedicated as a house of learning, where we are taught eternal truths through verbal, visual, and symbolic instruction, and where we may seek inspiration for specific personal concerns. President Hinckley has said, Every temple, large or small, has its beautiful celestial room. It is our privilege, unique and exclusive, while dressed in white— to sit at the conclusion of our ordinance work in the beautiful celestial room and ponder, meditate, and silently pray. We all need to make the temple an important and frequent part of our learning. We also need the Ensign and its messages of wisdom and inspiration to come into our homes and into our lives each month. Just as the early Saints looked to their prophet, Brigham Young, to guide them along a literal path from the Midwest to the Rocky Mountains, so must we look to our prophets to guide us along a spiritual path. I hope each student department receives the Ensign each month and is blessed by its influence. In addition to learning from the temple and the Ensign, we need daily scripture study. Just as helium slowly escapes from an inflated balloon, allowing it to fall after a few days, so do we slowly lose the power and memory of the scriptures without daily reading. President Hinckley has said, quote, I hope that for you, studying the scriptures will become something far more enjoyable than a duty. That, rather, it will become a love affair with the Word of God. I promise you that as you read, your minds will be enlightened and your spirits will be lifted. End of quote. In August of 2005, President Hinckley asked us all to reread the Book of Mormon by the end of that year. He promised us an added measure of the Spirit of the Lord, a strengthened resolution to walk in obedience to His commandments, and a stronger testimony of the living reality of the Son of God. Faithful Saints from all over the world responded to his call. Regarding this challenge, a member of my BYU stake shared the following special experience with me. To the best of my recollection, he said, I was flying back from a trip to the Far East. It was the middle of the night, and most of the passengers were asleep. I, however, had my reading light on and was reading the Book of Mormon so I could finish by the end of the year as the prophet had asked. Suddenly I was interrupted by a flight attendant who was walking down the aisle. She whispered, Where are you? (laughs) I responded, I'm in Messiah. She replied, I'm in Ether. And then she said, Turn around and look. I turned and looked toward the back of the plane and saw several other reading lights on. She whispered, All are reading the Book of Mormon. Although our lives are filled with countless demands and distractions, I think we all learn from our prophet that we can find the time to study the scriptures if we are determined enough, each in our own way and place and time. He has told us the what, individually we work out the how. In addition to giving spiritual strength, the scriptures also contain counsel to help address life's practical challenges. Some years ago, I served as a branch president at the Missionary Training Center, and I often told the missionaries that the scriptures could help them solve all their missionary challenges. One Sunday in priesthood meeting, we listed on the chalkboard several typical missionary challenges. Then I assigned small groups of elders to look up scriptures to address each of those challenges. After a few minutes I asked them to report on their findings. One group had tackled the problem of dealing with girlfriends back home. The verse they found to solve the problem came from John chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? <laughs> mine hour is not yet come. (laughs) Building on the first area of increasing our knowing, we move on to the second area of improving our doing. For although increased knowledge is vital, it is not enough. The Apostle James states that we must be doers of the word and not hearers only. And just as reading and pondering the words of God is accompanied by the Spirit— so will the doing aspect of the gospel be accompanied by the Spirit. The Savior said, If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. The Lord expects each step upward in knowledge to be followed by a step upward in performance. The Apostle James adds, To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. In other words, sin is the difference between our knowing and our doing. The greater the gap between the two, the greater the sin. And as the Doctrine and Covenants section 82 instructs, of him unto whom much is given, much is required. And he who sins against the greater light shall receive the greater condemnation. Elder Maxwell highlights the tight linkage between knowing and doing as follows. Quote, So it is that discipleship requires all of us to translate doctrines, covenants, ordinances, and teachings into improved personal behavior. Otherwise, we may be doctrinally rich but end up developmentally poor. Why does our doing so often lag behind our knowing, whether with home teaching, family home evenings, or a wide range of other areas? I suppose that busy schedules, distractions, wrong priorities, lack of commitment, and just poor time management contribute to the problem. In a statement regarding attendance at the temple, President Heber J. Grant addressed the typical excuses we make We can generally do that which we wish to do. A young man can find an immense amount of time to spend with his sweetheart. We can arrange our affairs to get exercise in the shape of golf and otherwise. We can arrange our affairs to have amusements. And if we make up our minds to do so, we can arrange our affairs to do temple work, judging from my own experience. I do not know of anyone that is busier than I am. And if I can do it, they can, if they will only get the spirit in their hearts and souls of wanting to do it. There is the key. Get the spirit in our hearts so we want to do it. Improvement in the doing arena does take great dedication. New habits can be hard to establish, and old habits can be so hard to break. As my son Steve included his mission in England, my wife and daughter and I joined him to travel and to visit some of the people he had baptized or helped activate. One faithful sister talked of her growth in the Church since her baptism. She spoke of the dedicated effort required to stay on the path and then said, It is so easy to backslide. It is, indeed, easy to backslide, but we can overcome it with enough determination. One of the people I baptized on my mission in Canada showed incredible determination to break a cigarette habit. He and his family lived on a small farm northwest of Calgary, Alberta, and a few months after they were baptized, he was out in the barn moving some bales of hay. Under one of the bales, he discovered a partially smoked cigarette. Without thinking, he picked it up and ran toward the house to get a match so he could smoke it. But halfway there, he stopped, looked at the cigarette, and asked himself, Am I going to be in charge of my life, or is this cigarette going to rule over me? After a crucial moment of intense internal battle, he dropped the cigarette to the ground and walked slowly back to the barn. Doctrine and Covenants 98 reveals, For he will give unto the faithful line upon line, precept upon precept, and I will try you and prove you herewith. I will prove you in all things whether you will abide in my covenant, even unto death. Let me share two additional doing examples that highlight the importance of establishing and maintaining good spiritual habits. First, a member of my uh, BYU stake recently told me that at one time in her life she had been mistreated at church and so she stayed away for a few weeks. Even after just a few weeks of absence, this wonderful returned missionary found it difficult to come back. Looking back on it now, she said, I realize how important it is to stick with good spiritual habits. The second example comes from my own family. Our daughter Amy married into a family that has had daily scripture study for over 20 years without a single miss. And Amy and her family have carried on that pattern for the seven years they have been married. Even when she is in the hospital with a new baby, their daily scripture study is carried on by telephone. How gratifying it is for Jeannie and me as parents to visit the homes of our other children as well and see a similar pattern of faithfulness including our family's habit of weekly family home evenings which now spans nearly 40 years. Just as gaining knowledge should expand from basic principles to deeper doctrine, so should our doing go beyond minimal compliance with specific thou shalt or thou shalt not commandments. The Lord says that it is not meet that I should command in all things. Men should be anxiously engaged in a good cause, and do many things of their own free will, and bring to pass much righteousness. For the power is in them, wherein they are agents unto themselves. And just as there are harmful and useless materials that can occupy our reading and learning, so are there harmful and useless activities that can occupy our time. We should avoid filling our days with these activities and instead spend our time doing that which is useful and vital. As someone once stated, That which matters most must never be at the mercy of that which matters least. Giving service such as that which we give in our church, in our communities, and especially in our families is central to this useful and essential work. By losing ourselves and doing good for others, we come to understand what the Lord meant when he said, He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Moving from increasing our knowing and improving our doing, we now come to the third and most important part of our progress, purifying our being or refining who and what we are deep down in our hearts. Elder Eyring clarifies that although doing is important, it is not our ultimate goal. In our last general conference, he said, The things we do are the means, not the end we seek what we do allows the atonement of Jesus Christ to change us into what we must be. Elder Bednar adds, people of integrity and honesty not only practice what they preach, they are what they preach. Elder Oaks tells us that the final judgment is not just an evaluation of a sum total of good and evil acts what we have done. It is an acknowledgment of the final effect of our acts and thoughts, what we have become. It is not enough for anyone just to go through the motions. The commandments, ordinances, and covenants of the gospel are not a list of deposits required to be made into some heavenly account. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a plan that shows us how to become what our Heavenly Father desires us to become. And what is it that we must become? The Savior answers very simply, Even as I am. He is the mark we must always look to. He is our supreme example. Chosen as our Savior not just because of his perfect obedience, but because of his perfect love, love which encompasses perfect knowledge and which motivates perfect obedience. The Savior also used the example of a child to teach us what we must become. Matthew records that Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except you be converted and become as a little child, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Numerous verses of scripture give additional detail as to the type of people we must become. From the thirteenth article of faith, we believe in being honest, true, chaste, benevolent, virtuous. From Alma, be humble, be submissive and gentle easy to be entreated, full of patience and long-suffering, being temperate in all things. From King Benjamin in the book of Mosiah, become as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things the Lord gives us. From Doctrine and Covenants 4, have faith, hope, charity, Love, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, brotherly kindness, godliness, charity, humility, diligence. And finally, from the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, section 121, be long-suffering, gentle, meek, loving, and kind. That, to me, is an exciting list. Imagine yourself when all those Christlike attributes are yours. Obviously, we are in in for a lifetime of effort and then some. The Prophet Joseph Smith stated that when you climb up a ladder, you must begin at the bottom and ascend step by step until you arrive at the top. And so it is with the principles of the gospel. You must begin with the first and go on until you learn all the principles of exaltation. But it will be a great while after you have passed through the veil before you will have learned them. It is not all to be comprehended in this world." It will be a great work to learn our salvation and exaltation even beyond the grave. Quote. The Family Proclamation also highlights the long-term process of becoming like Christ when it says that we are here in mortality to obtain a physical body and gain earthly experience to progress toward perfection. Some of us become too self-critical in the process. We want patience and we want it now. Sooner or later, we have to learn that becoming patient includes learning patience with ourselves as well as with others. Things take time. And those who become overzealous often find that the gospel isn't much fun anymore. Because of their perfectionistic attitude, it becomes more stressful than satisfying. We can fall off both sides of the path, and we must strive to stay in the middle where we're making reasonable progress given our life's circumstances. The Lord told the Prophet Joseph Smith, Do not run fast or labor more than you have strength and means. That is good counsel. We all need to learn to do our very best and then to be at peace. The Lord knows our circumstances, which change from season to season in our lives, and He will accept what we humbly and sincerely offer as our best, even though it is less than perfect. Two specific temple-recommend interview questions set a nice standard for us. They don't ask if we're perfect, but rather if we're striving to keep the commandments and if we consider ourselves to be worthy. Without becoming anxious and obsessive overachievers, we can strive to keep the commandments, and we can be worthy. Elder Maxwell reminds us that all of us are in the process of becoming, including prophets and general authorities. Because of differences in opportunity, talent, and circumstance, how we become Christ varies somewhat from person to person, but common elements in our spiritual progress include gospel study, service and activity in the Church, and obedience to the commandments. But above all, it is the cleansing effect of the Atonement and the Spirit that purify and change our hearts. As King Benjamin's people learned, It was the Spirit of the Lord that wrought a mighty change in them, that they had no more disposition to do evil but to do good continually. The many trials and challenges of life also help us become more Christ-like. For some people, life's trials seem to be relatively small. But even many little trials over a period of years can help us learn patience, meekness, and love, if we will be humble and teachable students. In our last general conference, President Hinckley said, When a man grows old, he develops a softer touch, a kindlier manner. Someone once told me, It's not your fault if you're not beautiful by age 18, but it is your fault if you're not beautiful by age 80. One of the special, older, and beautiful people in my life was my mother. After my father passed away, at almost 99 years of age, my mother, also in her 90s, lived with my family from time to time. Through her sweet example, she taught us always to look on the bright side of life and to see the good in others. One day Jeannie was telling her of one of our sons whose bedroom was a disaster with clothes, school books, and other stuff strewn about on bed and floor. My mother listened patiently and then said lovingly, Well, just tell him he has a clean ceiling. (laughs) This grandmother with her pure and loving heart was able to overlook the mess on the floor and look upward to the ceiling to find something to compliment. For some people, the trials of life can be much more challenging. A month ago, my son Steve and his wife Amy were saddened to learn that their little five-month-old daughter Their first child has a 17th chromosome disorder that presents to her and to her parents a very uncertain future. Since then, the Primary Children's Medical Center in Salt Lake has become their home, as the medical staff monitors Little Brooklyn's rare problems. Remembering that Robbie Hammond, my teaching assistant from two years ago, has a daughter with an 18th chromosome problem. I wrote to Robbie and told him of Steve and Amy's situation. In his email reply regarding my granddaughter, this young father reveals the tenderness of his heart as he talks of his own daughter, Emily, now age two. Robbie wrote, It's always a difficult time when we learn something like that, but believe me when I tell you that there is so much joy that comes from situations like this. Camille and I have never been through anything as joyful or as painful at times as with Emily. Emily. But it's the painful times that make the joyful times so indescribable. For example, when Emily was born, we were told a fairly doom and gloom story about what Emily would be like as she grew up. If those doctors could only see Emily now. Her most recent trick is rolling onto her stomach and getting up on her knees and rocking back and forth. Because she is blind, she hasn't quite figured out that crawling can get her to where she wants to go. I mention this because of how incredible I feel when I see her learn to do something as simple as get on her hands and knees and rock back and forth. It's almost brought me to tears of joy sometimes just watching her progress. Please let your son know that while there are certainly difficulties, the joys are unimaginable. Emily brings a very strong spiritual presence to my life. End of quote. Trials were certainly no stranger to the Prophet Joseph Smith. While suffering in the Liberty Jail, he was told by the Lord that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. And at the end of his life, just before riding off to Carthage where he would meet his death, Sister Mary Ellen Kimball overheard him say to her neighbor, If I never see you again or if I never come back, remember that I love you. Sister Kimball wrote that while the prophet's enemies had ripened in wickedness, he had ripened in goodness. That is also our challenge to ripen in goodness, even in the midst of a world ripening in wickedness, to develop a Christ like heart filled with love for God and for all mankind. Without a heart filled with love for what we do and for those whom we serve, none of us will ever fully achieve what we could or should. I pray that the Lord will bless us throughout our lives as we strive to progress in all the three areas of knowing, doing, and being. I pray that we will be diligent in doing our very best, but also be patient as we improve line upon line, learning upon learning, repentance upon repentance, onward and upward with the Lord trying us and proving us as we go. At times we will learn first and then be tried later. At other times, the Lord will try us first and then teach us from the trials. But in spite of the sequence, I pray that we will move forward with faith in and a love for the Lord, even while not knowing beforehand what lies ahead. Later in life, we'll be able to look back on the what of our lives and understand the why. If we have been true and faithful, these backward glances will reveal to us a clear path of progress toward perfection guided by an all-wise, very patient, and loving Heavenly Father. I testify that He lives, that His Son Jesus Christ is our Savior and Redeemer, and that they know and love each one of us beyond our present capacity to comprehend. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen.
0: You're listening to Finding Center. We've just heard from William H. Baker, and now we'll hear from Matthew N. Daly for his address as we now go forth.
2: My wife's great uncle and aunt are two of the kindest, most spiritual people I know. But financially, their life together has often been less than comfortable. He worked as a school teacher, and she stayed home with the four children. From a fairly young age, the wife suffered from various medical problems. Medical expenses put an almost unmanageable strain on the family's modest income. One of their few possessions was a beat-up, unreliable old car. One day, a woman unknown to the family arrived unannounced with the key to a new automobile, donated by an anonymous individual. To this day, this uncle and aunt still do not know the identity of their benefactor. Think for a moment upon ways in which you have been blessed. Perhaps foremost among our blessings, and far more valuable than an automobile, is an education at one of the finest institutions in the world. Reflect for a moment upon what made this education possible. Many had a portion of their schooling financed by scholarships or grants. Perhaps parents, high school teachers, church leaders, mentors, or college professors either encouraged our education or supported us during times of self-doubt, or other challenges. All of us have benefited from BYU's renowned reputation, forged by earlier graduates who built careers and communities based on integrity and intellectual achievement. Today, as we look around us, we see men and women, trained even by study and also by faith, who find ourselves prepared to enter the Lord's and society's service in new and thrilling ways. Dividends of many types will certainly accrue, as we reap the rewards of our training. Undoubtedly, we have been given much, and unto whom much is given, much is required. I recently read in the Marriott School Alumni Magazine an article that related the following inspiring story of a man who lived the spirit of giving. On December 23, 1999, there was a poor man in Kansas City looking for some warm winter clothing in a Salvation Army thrift shop. He had 75 cents in his pocket. Suddenly, someone approached him from behind and said, excuse me. He turned around, and a man pushed a hundred-dollar bill into his hand, said, Merry Christmas, and walked away. That wasn't the first time something like this had happened. It had been going on for years, and no one knew the giver's identity. He was only known as Secret Santa. He would walk around during the Christmas season giving money to people who needed food, clothing, or shelter. He came forward in 2006 because he had terminal cancer and was given one month to live. His doctor told him that if he wanted anybody to understand his mission, then he should reveal his identity. Secret Santa's real name was Larry Stewart, and he was a very wealthy entrepreneur. He'd given away $1.3 million in $100 bills, but he had also given away tens of millions of dollars more in traditional philanthropy. When the press asked him why he gave so much, he said, I'm just doing what the Lord is directing me to do. I'm just a pair of hands and feet. He's using me. He's lighted my path. Part of my daily prayer was, Lord, let me be a better servant. I had no idea this is what he had in mind, but I'm happy. I'm so thrilled he is able to use me in this way. What a tremendous example of one who used his resources to help meet community needs. For many of us, the time is still far distant when we can donate millions of dollars to philanthropic causes, but even the graduate's $10 bill, like the widow's mite, can bless giver and receiver alike. In his book Winners Never Cheat, self-made billionaire John Huntsman Sr. devotes an entire chapter to charitable giving. Mr. Huntsman has given hundreds of millions of dollars to worthy causes, including the famous Huntsman Cancer Institute. The avid philanthropist arose from humble beginnings, early in his married life earning only $320 a month. But he and his wife made the conscious decision to give to worthy causes every year. He writes, You don't have to be a billionaire to be a philanthropist. All that is required to be a philanthropist is a passion for making a difference. I should note, however, that financial contributions are not the only means by which we may serve others. My wife, a recent BYU graduate, is a superb example to me in this regard. For the last two years, she has worked as a special education teacher at a local elementary school. With the upcoming birth of our daughter, she looks forward to early retirement as a public educator and a full-time career as a mother. Nonetheless, she's already eager to use her training to bless the lives of individuals outside of our family. In the fall, we'll be relocating to Dallas, and my thoughtful wife has already begun her search for voluntary child welfare organizations in which she can serve. Her example teaches me that ultimately, a BYU education isn't about what it can do for us. The real question is how can the skills and training received at BYU? Bless the lives of those around us. Examples may include the accounting graduate who provides free income tax return assistance to low income families, the nursing graduate who volunteers to teach a car seat safety course in the community, the political science graduate who helps citizens register to vote, or the English graduate who tutors disadvantaged children. Each of us is in an exciting position to determine how our individual skills and knowledge may best be used to meet community needs. My friends, there are endless ways in which we may serve, and thus meet the call of the Master, who proclaimed that what we do unto the least of God's children, we do unto Him. May we always stay close to Him. May we cherish our BYU experience. And may we seek always to share our blessings with others. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center, Our theme today is Responsibility to Help Ourselves and Others. We have just heard from Matthew N. Daly. After the break, we'll return with Alton L. Thigerson for Saving Lives. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus— Our theme today is responsibility to help ourselves and others. Next is Alton L. Thigerson, professor of health science in the BYU College of Life Sciences at the time of this address, titled Saving Lives.
3: A best-selling book recently released uh, claims there is a way to excel. It claims that some of the greatest athletes, entrepreneurs, scientists... Musicians emerge after spending 10,000 hours in their chosen field as they master it. Examples in this book that some of you have read, The Outliers by uh, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, mentions that uh, the Beatles, uh, with their musical talent and Bill Gates' computer savvy, resulted from 10,000 hours. I was raised in the mission field and had never seen more than 200 Latter day Saints together. When 200 church members were seen together, it was either at a district conference or while visiting relatives in the small Mormon community of Burden, New Mexico. Many of you can relate to having a similar background. Some of you can recall that the average Sunday meeting attendance was 25 people. Meetings were held in a rented building, and often cigarette butts and beer cans left by another group's Saturday night festivities had to be picked up. My sister and I were the only LDS in the high school, and I remember receiving the advice that it is best to marry a church member, and the marriage should be in the temple. As a teenager, I would look around and wonder, well, who was that going to be? My father received a promotion that necessitated moving to another town. In high school, I was a stranger among my new classmates, and on the first day in American history. The teacher asked questions which served both as a preview of the course and as an attempt to arouse interest in history. Examples included, who really discovered America? What did Lewis and Clark do? Who was Pancho Villa? What was Custer's last stand? One of the questions he asked was, do any of you know the real name of the Mormon Church? While my classmates had readily answered or attempted to answer the previous questions, no one responded to this one. After what seemed like a long period of silence, I slowly raised my hand and said, The Mormon Church's name is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. Even today, many people do not know that answer. At the end of class, the teacher asked me to stay while he politely asked if I were a Mormon to which I replied yes. He became my advocate. I believe he was a factor in having my name on the short list of nominees resulting in various honors and recognitions during my high school years. We all have an advocate, and that is Jesus Christ. He is our advocate with the Father, meaning that He pleads our case before the Father. It is part of the Atonement of which I will enlarge upon later. I've spent a career teaching and authoring and publishing books and other publications about helping injured people. During that time, I've come across numerous rescue stories. A story in Church history tells of the rescue and the saving of future LDS President Lorenzo Snow. He was called to a mission to the Hawaiian Islands. After the ship's arrival, Lorenzo and his companions were going ashore in a smaller boat when suddenly an immense wave capsized their tiny craft and washed them overboard. All were accounted for except Lorenzo. A frantic search turned up his lifeless body. His companions quickly made for the shore. Upon reaching land, they rolled him over an empty barrel to expel the water. Then they were impressed to take turns applying mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, a little-known technique at the time. And Lorenzo was miraculously recovered. I should make a side note here about uh, mouth to mouth resuscitation. The Paris Academy of Science in 1790 first suggested that for drowning victims, mouth to mouth resuscitation should be tried. But not until 1956 when two American physicians really uh, put forth the idea that it should be used, and now we call it rescue breathing. That uh, the mouth to mouth resuscitation or rescue breathing caught on. And between those years of 1790, that the uh, Paris Proclamation, and 1956, various other methods were used. The older Boy Scouts in the audience, namely those people in their 50s and 60s, may remember the back pressure, prone or arm lift, uh, and various ways to push and gouge and shove on the chest. And then finally in 1956, as we've said, uh, rescue breathing came into being. Uh, Between those times, they uh, also used the uh, blacksmith bellows sometimes, which was an interesting technique. President Thomas S. Monson, in many of his conference addresses and talks to young men and women, has spoken about rescuers and heroes who have led lives worthy of emulation. He has reached into the scriptures for accounts, into history for antidotes, and into newspapers and magazines for reports about individuals who have helped or even saved others. And he has shared a wealth of examples from his own experiences. A little-known fact is that President Monson has rescued someone in distress. Here's how the story goes. A warm summer day found 12-year-old Thomas S. Monson floating in a large inflated inner tube from a tractor tire down the river in the... Canyon. Just as he was about to enter the swiftest part of the river, he heard frantic cries of, Save her! Save her! A young woman had fallen into a deep part of the river. None of the people on the bank had swim to save her. President Monson reports that he saw the top of her head disappear several times under the water. When he stretched forth his hand, grabbed her hair, and lifted her over the side of the tube— he paddled the tube with the young woman over to her relatives and friends, where he was hugged and kissed. He says that he was embarrassed and that he quickly returned to the tube and continued his float down the river. President Monson's biography that was released just yesterday has a well-deserved title, To the Rescue, The contents tell of us decades of saving people through a service. In order to track through popularity, Hollywood movie stars, professional sports figures, politicians, companies, and organizations sometimes subscribe to a newspaper clipping service. A number of years ago, I conducted a small research project dealing with rescues. There were no databases, so I subscribed to a newspaper clipping service for the purpose of collecting accounts of rescues from across the country. In a single year, 520 news reports— of rescues were collected. Excluded were the professional rescuers such as lifeguards, police, and firefighters. This project led me to search for other rescue stories. The press at that time carried an account of the rescue of a woman who had been swept downstream by a strong river current. Three teenagers riding their bicycles on a path near the river spotted the woman. While one of them went for help, the other two tried to catch up with a woman helpless in the river. After about a mile, they waded into the river and pulled the exhausted woman onto the bank. It was only then that one of the boys discovered that he had saved his own mother's life. This story should remind us that we never know who might need help. You are being helpful when you provide directions to a lost driver. Hold the door open for a stranger pick up packages that have been dropped, or let someone in a hurry cut before you in line. These forms of helping are not very costly, and most of us give and receive such benefits every day. Helping in these ways is so common that we often take them for granted, just as a part of life. But other forms of helping can be more costly. People may go out of their way to return a lost wallet, offer assistance after a vehicle crash, or help free a stranger's car stuck in the snow. Not everyone does these things, but they happen frequently. Some forms of helping are less tangible than holding open a door or pushing a car out of the snow. Often we are needed, or we need others, to provide moral support, some encouraging words, or a shoulder to cry on. This kind of emotional helping and social support is common among families and friends and it helps in having a happy and healthy life. Most of you have heard, I shall pass this way but once, therefore any good that I can do or any kindness that I can show. Let me do it now, for I shall not pass this way again. A good deal of research has been conducted on bystander intervention. This describes the situation in which a person sees someone in trouble and must decide whether or not to help the victim. As the preceding examples illustrate, there are many different ways in which a person can help others. Because of this diversity, I will focus upon spontaneous emergency helping, typically involving strangers. At some time, everyone will be faced with a decision of whether or not to help an injured victim. Making a quick decision to get involved is more likely to happen if we have already considered the possibility of facing an emergency and having decided to help. With 180,000 injury-related deaths and 26 million disabling injuries each year in this country, everyone can expect to face an injured victim sometime during their lifetime. Unless you were raised by Attila the Hun, you have been taught that it is good to help others. If you take a social psychology course, though, I think it's Psychology 350 here at BYU, you will learn about a 28-year-old woman named Kitty Genovese who was returning home from her job at about 3 o'clock in the morning. As she left her car, she was attacked and stabbed by a knife-wielding man. Her screams woke up the people in the building next to the parking lot, and the attacker fled but returned a few minutes later and stabbed her again. She screamed for help. Later investigations revealed that about a dozen people had either heard or saw the attack but did nothing. The movie actor Sal Minio, and for those who might remember the good old Hollywood classics of Giant and Exodus are the names of the movie titles, uh, he starred in those. But Sal Minio was returning to his apartment at about 1 o'clock in the morning, as he left his car, a knife-wielding man stabbed him. Several neighbors heard his screams for help and called the police. A man ran into the alley to give mouth-to-mouth resuscitation as an effort to save him. The neighbors did not idly stand by. The response of people to Salminio being attacked shows that humans have compassion for others. However, The Kitty Genovese case demonstrates that people can have a callous disregard for another person's welfare. Helping others can make a difference. Here is a story worth telling. A man walking on an ocean beach noticed that a young man was reaching down, picking up small objects and throwing them into the ocean. As he came closer, he called out, Good morning. What are you doing? The young man paused, looked up, and replied, throwing starfish into the ocean. Why are you throwing starfish into the ocean? asked the older man. To this young man replied, The sun is up and the tide is going out. If I don't throw them in, they'll die. Upon hearing this, the man said, Young man, don't you realize that there are miles and miles of beach and there are starfish along every mile? You cannot possibly make a difference. At this, the young man bent down, picked up another starfish, and threw it into the ocean. As it landed in the water, he said, it made a difference for that one. Few stories have gained the internet popularity the way the starfish story has. It's a story of the power within each one of us to make a difference in the lives of others. It's a strong reminder that we can help each other. Thousands of people have spontaneously helped each other. We should expect that if an earthquake or a car crash happens, many people will freely and willingly step forward to help. The competency of a bystander plays a critical part in whether or not help will be offered. If the bystander has first aid and CPR training, help is more likely to be given. Therefore, I strongly suggest that you obtain first aid and CPR training. If you have already, you may need updating because procedures have changed. For example, first-aiders no longer give syrup of epicac for ingested poison. No longer apply pressure on the brachial or femoral arteries to help control bleeding. No longer use suction for a venomous snake bite. And the list goes on. Also important to learn are a lot of new procedures replacing the ineffective and unproven methods. Sadly, less than one-third of the out-of-hospital, sudden cardiac arrest victims receive CPR. But if effective, CPR provided immediately increases the victim's chance of survival by doubling it or tripling it. The rescuers we read about are not larger-than-life people. Rather, they are ordinary people who have internalized a sense of empathy for others— They have developed a caring attitude and gained skills that prompt and enable them to respond to emergencies. Their moral values urge them to intervene. No discussion about helping others would be complete without covering the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable appears only in the Gospel of Luke. In the parable, a Jewish traveler is beaten, robbed, and left half dead. First a priest and then a Levite come by but both avoid the man. Finally, a Samaritan comes by and helps. Remember that the Samaritans and Jews generally despised each other. The Samaritan helped by giving first aid, transporting and staying with the victim until the next day. The Samaritan gave the innkeeper money to care for the victim with the understanding that if more were needed on the next trip, he would pay for the extra care. There are two ways of looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan, and both ways are correct. One explanation has the parable to be an allegory with a Samaritan representing Jesus Christ, who saves a man wounded by sins. For more information about the parable's symbolisms, BYU professor John W. Welch has authored a detailed analysis in his Church magazines and BYU studies. The second explanation has the parable exemplifying the ethics that Jesus espoused—that of helping our neighbor. Of Jesus' parables, none has worked its way deeper into our beliefs. The phrase, Good Samaritan, is used to describe any person who goes out of his way to help another. It is a theme that newspaper reporters love to feature because it captures readers' attention and imagination. The largest recreational vehicle club in the United States uses the term the Good Sam Club from its idea of members helping one another. Numerous hospitals carry the name Good Samaritan. The term Good Samaritan appears as the title of one of my first aid manuals. Good Samaritan laws encourage people to help injured victims by granting them immunity against lawsuits. In the parable, Jesus is not content just to define what neighbor means. He tells us to do as the Samaritan does, to help others who need help. A California physician maintained a ledger that chronicled 120 people whose lives he had saved as a good Samaritan. The victims were not his patients in his office or in a hospital, but were strangers. Most involved freeway car crashes— Others included drowning, being thrown from a horse, electrocution, choking, cardiac arrest, and falling off a cliff. In all 120 cases, doctors stepped in and saved a life. While the physician's story of saving 120 people is very commendable, the most significant rescuer that we have is Jesus Christ. He is known as our Savior for a good reason. Only Jesus can save us. The clearest expression of this is given by King Benjamin in the Book of Mormon. There shall be no other name given, nor any other way, nor means whereby salvation can come unto the children of men, only in and through the name of Christ. To be saved by Jesus Christ means to be saved by the atonement. There are several ways in which the Savior saves us. One, All people will be resurrected from the dead and thus saved from physical death. Two, all people except the sons of perdition will be assigned to a kingdom of glory and thus be rescued from the influence of Satan. Three, the ultimate salvation referred to in the scriptures is known as exaltation. Exaltation is another way of saying the type of life that God lives— This is life in the highest degree of glory in the celestial kingdom. A simple explanation of how the Atonement works can be illustrated by a man falling into a pit so deep he cannot climb out. The man calls for help, and a passerby puts a ladder down into the pit, allowing the man to climb out. We are like the man in the pit. Committing sin is like falling into the pit, and we cannot get out by ourselves. Just as the passerby heard the man's cry for help, Heavenly Father sent his only begotten Son to provide the means for escape. Jesus Christ's atonement could be compared to the ladder. It gives us the means to climb out. Just as a man in the pit had to climb up the ladder, we must repent of our sins and obey the gospel principles and ordinances to climb out of our pit. Thus it is by the grace that we are saved after all we can do. We should be grateful that there is a way for us to overcome sin and physical death. And I testify that Jesus Christ provides that way through the Atonement. He is our Savior, and it is in His name that I close. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Responsibility to Help Ourselves and Others with thoughts from William H. Baker, Matthew N. Daly, and Alton L. Figerson. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.